Please open a Bible with me to Matthew 28. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 992. I'm going to read all of Matthew 28. It's not a very long chapter. Uh, and then we will reflect on it together. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Matthew opens before dawn on the first day of the week with these two, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, going to the tomb to see it. In the end of chapter 27, these women were among a group of disciples who stand off at a distance watching the crucifixion to the end. And then they follow Joseph of Arimathea and sit opposite the tomb and watch as Jesus is buried. They were the last at the cross, and now they are the first at the tomb. But as they approach the tomb, the earth begins to shake as an angel of the Lord descends from heaven. I imagine, I guess, like a uh, space shuttle launch in reverse. He's coming down and it's shaking all the earth round about. Then the angel rolls back the stone and sits on it. What an odd juxtaposition. It says his clothes are like lightning. They can't even look at him. The earth is shaking. He rolls back the stone 
And then he sits on the tombstone, kicking his legs like a gleeful schoolboy. He doesn't have a care in the world, for the angel already knows Christ is risen. No, the angel doesn't come to open the tomb so that Jesus can get out. In the wonder of the resurrection, the mystery of the resurrection, Jesus is already gone. He moves the stone so that the women can see in. They can see the empty tomb. And then the angel gives them a message. And his three instructions provide us with our outline this morning. Don't be afraid. Come and see. Go and tell. In Matthew 28, we see a variety of responses to the resurrection. The guards are terrified. They tremble and apparently pass out. The women, we're told, are filled with fear, but also great joy. The disciples fall at Jesus' feet and worship, but also doubt. The temple leaders respond with denial and disbelief. But what we see most frequently is this word fear. Four times the word fear or afraid is used in the first 10 verses. The women and the guards are afraid. The angel and the risen Jesus say, don't be afraid. That's our first point this morning. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We all experience fear. Some fears we sort of forget we have. You forget that you're afraid of spiders until you're laying in bed and you see a big spider crawling down the wall towards you. And then all of a sudden you remember you're afraid of spiders, right? Or, or you're out hiking and you come around a corner and you see a big rattlesnakes laying in the sun. And all of a sudden you remember, oh yeah, I feel uncomfortable around rattlesnakes. I, I'm afraid of them. Other fears are kind of running in the background at all time, as it were. They're not, they don't just turn on like a snake or a spider, but they're always there. We fear wasting our lives. That can be almost a debilitating fear. We worry if I go to this college instead of that college, if I date this person instead of that person, if I take this job instead of that job, you know, what will happen? Am I going to ruin my life? Am I going to miss chances? What will I miss out on? We worry about environmental and economic collapse. We're anxious about getting the approval of our friends or our parents or even our children. Increasingly, our politics is about fear-mongering. Politicians don't pitch a vision anymore. They just say, elect me or the other guys will ruin our country. It's based on fear. Fear can overwhelm. It can debilitate. It can lead us to make bad decisions. And yet, in verse 5, the first announcement of the resurrection begins. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. And in his first appearance... Jesus, in verse 10, repeats the message. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. With the resurrection, a new order has come to the world. New creation is beginning. And so fear is replaced with hope. Anxiety is replaced with confidence. What's the foundation of this hope? What's the reason that we can be confident? What's the reason we don't have to be afraid? We'll see the angel's words in verses 5 and 6. Don't be afraid. Jesus, who was crucified, isn't here. He is risen. That's the reason why we don't have to be afraid. Jesus, who was crucified, is risen. This is our hope in life and death, our comfort, our confidence. Jesus, who was crucified, 
is risen. And yet, even that truth is somewhat unsettling. The women hear the message. They seem to accept it to some degree because they go to the city to tell the disciples. And yet, what does Matthew say in verse 8? They depart quickly from the tomb filled with fear and great joy, both at the same time. Uh, Calvin describes it as a, uh, if I can find my notes, Calvin says it's a fever of happiness and alarm. It's like all mixed up together. They're joyful. Their friend who they thought was gone is alive again. The one they hoped was the Savior has apparently risen from the dead. Great joy. And yet, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like most Jews in the first century, these women would have believed that at the last day, at the end of all things, God would raise his people from the dead. And yet that has happened in their own day, in their own presence. What does that mean? The end of history come in the middle? It's like history is folding in on itself. It's like the end is erupting in the middle of things. It's turning the whole world upside down. So there's joy, but there's also fear. The angel tells these women, do not be afraid. Jesus who is crucified is risen. That's an invitation to come and believe or to believe. But the resurrection isn't something that they have to believe in the face of all evidence. The angel doesn't say, uh, don't look at this tomb, but just go believe that he's risen and go somewhere else. No, what's the second thing he says? He opens the stone and he says, come and see. That's the second point, come and see. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then we have hope. We have a reason for hope and comfort and confidence. And we too are invited to come and see. All four of the Gospels, which originally were independent documents, as well as a number of the New Testament letters, all set before us evidence for the resurrection. And they invite us to consider that evidence. They say, come and see. Jesus is raised from the dead. That's a supernatural act that transcends the ability of history and science to verify. Okay, so we can't prove it like, like uh, in that sense. And yet just because it, it supersedes what we know from history, it doesn't mean it's less than historical. God did raise Jesus from the dead, and that leaves an imprint on history. So let's come and see the evidence then. First, Jesus did in fact die. The Gospels agree he was beaten and whipped to the point that he couldn't carry his own cross without help. He was crucified, exposed to the elements, pierced by a spear. Professional soldiers certified to Pilate that he was indeed dead. His body was taken from the cross, entombed, and placed under guard. He really was dead. There really was a body in the tomb. And yet, second... The angel invites the women to come and see. The tomb is now empty. He is not there. This seems to be agreed on all sides. Do you see this bit in verses 11 through 15? The temple leaders and others, uh, the rumor they spread is not, well, the body's still in the tomb and they're just making this up. No, the rumor they spread is Jesus' followers came and stole the body because they agree the tomb is indeed empty and we need to explain it somehow. What should we make about those rumors? It's unlikely that Matthew would have invented them. 
Okay, uh, thinking about it, if Matthew's trying to convince us Jesus raised from the dead, he's not going to invent counter stories. He puts this in because these rumors really are going about. That means in the first century, people were all saying that tomb was empty and we need to explain it somehow. But the guard's story is, is self-defeating. If the guards were asleep, how could they know that Jesus' disciples stole the body? Uh, by definition, if you're not awake, you don't know what's going on around you. It's not only self-defeating, it's not really that plausible that a group of professional soldiers fell asleep without setting a watch and that these disciples were able to sneak past the professional soldiers and roll the stone out of the way and carry a dead body out of the tomb all without waking the soldiers up. Uh, it, it's not a particularly plausible story. But Matthew shows us there's two options here. There's an empty tomb that needs explained. There's two competing stories. You have the story of the guards on the one hand, the story of the witnesses on the other. Both, though, accept the tomb was empty. Jesus really died. His body was in the tomb. The tomb is empty. And then the third piece of evidence, I guess I'm counting wrong on my fingers. Sorry if that throws you off. The third piece of evidence we need to consider is the eyewitnesses themselves. We're invited to consider their eyewitness testimony. These two women and the 11 disciples in, in Matthew 28 here all claim to have been eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus. The other Gospels in Paul's letter independently attest to these eyewitnesses. They're not figures made up by Matthew. Uh, these letters and four Gospels all circulating independently in the first century all say, these are eyewitnesses that you can ask. Well, we might think they thought they saw the resurrected Jesus, but ancient people were gullible. So, you know, they believed all sorts of things. Well, it's true that ancient people did believe all sorts of crazy things. But it's also true that modern people believe all sorts of crazy things. Uh, the Washington Post is one of our major newspapers and yet publishes the horoscope every day or week, however often it's published. Okay, so this is one of our most prominent newspapers and it features astrology prominently. People that are modern believe crazy things. Uh, ancient, it's not like somehow our IQ is way higher than ancient people or something like that and we've gotten smarter. Yes, our science has advanced, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, no scientist is famed for discovering that dead bodies tend to stay dead. Okay, that's not like an experiment you need to run a lot of times to figure out. People know that. Moreover, do you see in verse 17, when the 11 disciples saw Jesus, they worship him and some doubted. It's one of those spots where you want to say, hang on, Matthew, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. It's just the 11 that we've seen with Jesus this whole time. And he says, some of them doubted. Okay, how many? Which ones? Was it Matthew himself? Is he one of the some? Peter, James, John? I mean, surely Thomas, uh, probably, right? But some of these disciples doubted. And yet, after 40 days with the risen Jesus, they were convinced. Let me ask you, if you're struggling with doubts today about the resurrection, what would it take to convince you that Jesus really did raise from the dead? What would it take to overcome your doubts and your skepticism? I mean, whatever that is, these guys had the doubts as well. And after 40 days, they were convinced. They were convinced to the point that they all, all of them, not just like a couple of the apostles, all 11 give the rest of their lives to carrying the good news that Jesus really has risen around the globe. 
as an aside, notice Jesus does not rebuke these disciples for their doubts. Okay? Good disciples can worship and struggle with doubts. Those things aren't contradictory. Just like the women have fear and joy. I mean, that's a realistic portrait of discipleship. That it's, it, it's mixed up. The last thing we need to see about these witnesses, uh, they claim to be eyewitnesses. Okay? They had their own doubts, and yet those doubts were overcome. The last thing we need to see, though, is that their lives were transformed by what they witnessed. They saw something that changed everything. Days earlier, these disciples fled from Jesus when he was arrested in fear. Now they are no longer afraid, but boldly witness in the midst of Jerusalem that Jesus has risen. Weeks earlier, they're arguing with each other, who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' community? Now they give their lives to carry this message that Jesus is risen to the ends of the earth. Here's the evidence. Come and see. Jesus really died. The tomb really was empty. And witnesses, eyewitnesses, really saw the risen Jesus. And that encounter with the risen Jesus was fundamentally life-changing. Matthew invites us, like the angel, come and see. Consider for yourself. Believing in Jesus' resurrection, it's not just wishful thinking. There's evidence that needs explained, and this is a good explanation. But Jesus' resurrection only makes sense in the context of a world where the good creator God has made himself known in Israel's traditions and in Christ Jesus. Okay, if you're fundamentally committed to a world where things just happen by chance and it's all random and eventually at one point some molecules all got together and formed a planet and then some more molecules got together and formed life and some more molecules got together and that's where personality comes from and that's what we're doing now. If that's what you're totally committed to, well, the resurrection, I guess, is just another one of those random things that happens. But in the context of a world where there is a good creator God who comes and makes himself known in the stories of Israel, and then comes in the flesh, that he dies and then rises again is not fundamentally uh, uh, unreasonable. In fact, it's entirely believable. C.S. Lewis put it this way, The question is, I suppose, whether any hypothesis covers the facts so well as the Christian hypothesis. The hypothesis is that God has come down into the created universe, down to manhood, and come up again, pulling it with him. The alternative hypothesis is not that Jesus is just a legend, or that the stories about him are exaggeration, nor the apparitions of a ghost. It's either lunacy or lies. Okay, the disciples, what Jesus claimed about himself, it's either lunacy or lies. Unless one can take that second alternative and think all these disciples and Jesus himself were crazy liars, and Lewis says, and I can't, one turns to the Christian theory. And so we shouldn't ask, what are we to make of Christ? But rather, what does he intend to make of us? This turns us then to the angel's third instruction. Go and tell. He says, don't be afraid. Jesus who is crucified is risen. Come and see for yourself. And then go and tell. Go and tell. That's our third point. My kids love uh, these Ripley's Believe It or Not books that are filled with all sorts of weird trivia. 
and I actually also like weird trivia. So did you know, for example, that in 1972, a flight attendant survived falling from over 30,000 feet without a parachute? It's true. Uh, did you know that you can survive for up to 90 seconds in space without a spacesuit? Uh, again, it's true. Did you know, did you know that the longest single syllable English word is screeched? I didn't until I Googled weird facts this week. Okay, uh, but what do you do with weird trivia? Do you drop everything and go call your grandma and say, guess what, grandma? You can survive in space for 90 seconds without a spacesuit. No, you, you save up weird trivia for when a conversation gets a little boring, right? Or trivial pursuit, or if you're wise guys, you save it up to impress girls on dates that you know all these facts about things, right? But the question is, uh, uh, what, or, or, or what I'm trying to say though is weird trivia, you don't go and tell weird trivia. You don't drop everything and, and, and tell everybody you know, you've got to know this fact. 90 seconds in space without a spacesuit. Can you believe it? Okay, that's not what you do with weird trivia. The question I'm posing to you is, what is the resurrection? Is it weird trivia? You know, one time, 2,000 years ago, it seems like this guy probably raised from the dead. Isn't that strange? Is that what it is? What kind of news do you go and tell people? You go and tell people life-transforming news, right? Stuff that's of fundamental significance. Okay, I got engaged. I need to tell you this. That's what you call people and tell them. Or we're expecting a baby. I've got to tell you this. The baby was born. Those are the kinds of things that you tell people, that you go and tell people. And that's the kind of news that the resurrection is. It's not weird trivia. It's life transforming. The angel says, come and see and then go and tell. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go and tell. And then when the disciples come and see Jesus, what does he say? He says, go and make disciples. Go and tell the good news, this life-transforming news. Well, what is it about the resurrection that makes it so important? What does it mean for us? Well, following the instructions of the angels and Jesus, the women do go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And then in Matthew's story, that's the next scene. They go and meet Jesus in Galilee. Now, if you were at the sunrise service this morning where we read from Luke and, and John, you're probably wondering like, what about the road to Emmaus and the upper room and Thomas and all that stuff? Yeah, Matthew knows all that stuff happened. But the way he's telling the story, he wants to put these two things together. Okay, for, maybe for Matthew in his own experience, this is when things finally clicked in Galilee. But, you know, what, for whatever reason, this is how he interprets the resurrection. He says, these words from Jesus explain why the resurrection is so life-changing, why it's so significant. Of course, there's a lot packed in verses 16 through 20, and we're not going to touch on all of that. Uh, uh, there's, yeah, there's just a lot there that we're not going to get to. But what I want you to see is Jesus uh, says the fundamental significance of the resurrection is there in the very last sentence of Matthew's gospel. He says, look, behold, do you see this? I am with you always to the end of the age. At the very beginning of Matthew's gospel in the first chapter, remember an angel comes to Joseph and he says, don't be afraid. Sound familiar? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child that she has is from the Lord and you'll call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, this all took place to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. And now at the end of the gospel, the very last words of Matthew's gospel, this is fulfilled. That baby born of the virgin has grown up. He has ministered. He has taught people. He has died in our place. He has risen again to defeat death. And what is the promise of the resurrection? God with us. I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. Here is why we shouldn't be afraid. I am with you always. If you're not a Christian, this may be one of the strangest parts of the story to understand. It's not just the two women and the 11 disciples who say, we have seen the risen Christ. It's Christians around the world, throughout history, millions and millions and millions and billions of people who have said, I too have encountered the risen Lord. And it has transformed my life just like it transformed theirs. That's the good news of the resurrection. I am with you. Jesus draws attention to several ways that he's with us. First, Jesus is with us in history. Jesus is with us in history. In verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead and preaching on that and then this, I've been chewing on it and thinking, you know, why did the women and the disciples not expect Jesus to rise again? They just seen Lazarus raised after four days. Why is this so unexpected? Uh, here's, here's what I think. Um, and, and earlier in his ministry, Jesus raised Jairus, his daughter from the dead as well. So they had seen other people raised. Why are they not expecting Jesus to raise? Uh, here's what I think. Do you remember in 101 Dalmatians, the Disney movie, uh, the housekeeper comes out and she says, 15 puppies. And then she comes out again and she says, no, just 14. One didn't make it. And then hands Roger the puppy wrapped in the, in the, in the uh, towel. Do you remember the scene? And then, and then Roger's comforting Pongo. And he says, it's just the way things are, old boy. But then he says, I wonder. Remember? And he starts to rub the puppy and he's able to resuscitate it. And then it lives. Uh, with Lazarus, with Jairus, his daughter, there's a Roger. Jesus is there to resuscitate the dead bodies. And they say, well, you know, we don't understand a lot of things Jesus does. He calms the storms. He walks on water. There's all kinds of things he does we don't understand. And so, yeah, he raises some people from the dead. We don't understand that either. But now that Jesus himself is dead, there's no intermediary. There's no prophet there to raise him from the dead. All hope seems to be gone. And yet, that's precisely the point. God himself, apart from any intermediary, reaches down and raises Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is proof and confirmation that Jesus is God's Messiah. As one theologian puts it, by raising Jesus from the dead and clothing him with glory, God stands beside Jesus and says, he belongs with me. He's with me. It's a resurrection, not simply a resuscitation. This is something fundamentally new. There's continuity with his earthly life. The body is gone from the tomb, okay? And so it's, it's restored. And yet it's something even more glorious. Something even more glorious. And at the resurrection and ascension, God gives to Jesus all authority. And so Jesus is with you in history. As the Lord who directs the course of history, and protects his church.
That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. Okay, they will. Uh, God plans all of history and still allows his own son to be crucified. That's the way he works. It's through brokenness, not stopping pain and suffering. What it means, though, is that Christ is with us. Christ is with us. And that means that history has meaning. History has meaning. It doesn't mean that Christians can definitively declare this is the meaning of every event that happens. And when sometimes Christians try to say this is what that tornado means or that sort of thing, um, we should be skeptical. But what it means is that history itself has meaning. It's not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's not a story told twice, first as tragedy and then as farce. No, it's a story of God redeeming his broken world. It's a story that centers on the resurrection of Jesus. So history has a meaning. We see it like a light off through the fog. There's meaning, there's significance. Second, Jesus says, I am with you in the church. I'm with you in the church. In verse 20, when he says, I am with you, that word you is actually plural. And in English, we don't really have a second person plural unless you're from the South and then you can say y'all, that sort of idea of a group of people. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm with y'all. I'm with the church. I'm with you. And again, uh, like I mentioned, there's a lot packed into here. We can't unpack it all. But, but he's saying, when you administer baptism to someone and you signify them by my name, you mark them by my name, I'm with you in that. And he's saying, when you go and make disciples and you teach them, when you read my word and you preach it, I'm with you in that. And that's why, as I, as I said a minute ago, thousands upon thousands, millions of Christians say, when, when the word is preached, my heart is changed. Christ is with his word. By his spirit. Third, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us in history. He's with us in the church when his people are gathered together. But he's also with us to the very end. At the end of the age, at the end of all things, at the end of the world, I'm there. I'm there with you. When you die and you pass through that veil, I'm there waiting for you on the other side. When the world itself starts to come apart and then gets put back together again, I'm there. I'm there at the end of the world, at the end of the ages. Jesus' final word is a promise. He will bring all things to its proper end. And what is the proper end of all things? It's Christ Jesus himself. We've already seen the end in the middle of history, 2,000 years ago. The end of history is Christ, crucified and risen. New creation through Christ. That's the end of history, and we've already seen it. Jesus, who was crucified, is risen. So don't be afraid. There's evidence. Come and see. You can encounter the risen, living Jesus Christ yourself. Yourself. If you're you're wondering about this, if you want to challenge me on this, you can pray today. Say, Jesus, I don't even know if you're there, but if you are, reveal yourself to me. The disciples, when they see him, they worship. That's how they encounter the risen Christ. In just a moment, we're going to sing together and worship. That's when believers encounter the risen Christ. Other times as well, but when we sing his praises together. Come and see. This is life-changing 
earth-shaking, revolutionary news. The kind of news that you have to go and tell. Jesus, who was crucified, is risen. And so he says to you, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a living Lord, that you rose again, that you rule over all things, that you are with us, so we do not need to be afraid. We ask that this life-changing news would get into our hearts and our minds, that it would transform us. May we, by the way we live, bear witness to you, the living Lord. As we, like your disciples all those years ago, come to your feet and worship you, may we encounter you afresh, the living Lord. Amen.